You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And sitting next to me today is my co-host, Pacific Company COO, John Polk. Thanks for being here, John. Sure thing, Summer. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Dr. Carol Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman is a board-certified psychiatrist. She specializes in media psychiatry, forensic psychiatry. She also works as an expert witness and is an author of multiple books. So we are very, very excited to have Dr. Lieberman on the podcast today. Uh, just to learn more about what she does and all the interesting cases that she's had. So let's get started. And just a quick reminder, this podcast is intended to be an open forum. Any personal beliefs, views, or opinions represented in this episode are that of our guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Pacific Companies. So please have an open mind and remember that this podcast is not a news source, but rather a safe and neutral platform for candid conversations. Uh, good morning. We are on the line right now uh, with Dr. Carol Lieberman, board-certified psychiatrist here at Doc Lounge. And Dr. Lieberman, tell us about your work and, and what you do. Sure. Thank you for having me on. Um, when I was deciding to go to medical school, which actually began when I was uh, eight years old and I read a book about Elizabeth Blackwell, uh, the first woman physician in America, um, and then as a teen read Freud's Interpretation of Dreams, which sent me on the road to becoming a psychiatrist, um, but before I actually, or right at the time, during the time period when it came uh, time to apply to medical school, um, in college in other words, <laughs> I took a trip to Chicago to the AMA offices, uh, and because I wanted to know whether committing myself to being a doctor meant that 24-7 or, you know, five days a week, um, I would need to see patients, that, that that would be the only thing that I could do. And um, I met with someone there who described to me, no, that, you know, being a doctor can be, and seeing patients can be certainly part of it, but there really are a lot of other things that you can do with that degree, with that knowledge and, and experience and so on. So with that, um, I continued on my path to medical school, and um, I have, in, in fact, you know, carried that idea out, sort of an eclectic plan, um, which is, of course, I do see patients, um, but I also do a number of other things, such as uh, being, what I call my day job, is being a forensic psychiatrist and expert witness. And so I travel around um, all over the country, really, doing uh, cases, serving as an expert witness in civil and criminal cases. And then um, I also wanted to be an author. That was one of the things that, you know, do I have to choose this or this? Um, and so I have been, I am a published author of four books. Um, some uh, bestsellers, some award winners, and um, and what else? I also um, I also another thing I wanted to do on my way to medical school that I was planning 
uh, and I do, is to appear on television and radio and uh, all all kinds of media um, to talk about different issues that people are facing. You know, it was because I wanted to um, share my uh, knowledge about mental health issues, but really insights into how people people's emotions work. Um, I wanted to share it with more than just the patients that I would have that I would ever be able to see in a lifetime. So that's why a large part of what I do, you know, is speaking and the books and um, being on television and radio um, to talk about these things. That's a fascinating uh, assortment of responsibilities as well as activities and accomplishments. Is this your first podcast? <laughs> um, no, <laughs> Uh, I actually have a podcast of my own, which let me step back a minute. Um, after I, a, a lot of t- a lot of times before nine eleven, what I would talk about in the media, of course, was my first two books, um, which were relationship books, Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live with Them, and When to Leave Them, and um, and Bad Girls, which actually uh, Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them, and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. When 9-11 happened, since I am a New Yorker, even though I am currently living in California, um, I changed, it changed everything. And I asked myself what I could do and what I should do as a psychiatrist to help people cope with what is the most um, traumatic experience that we will all have. Um, and we is and is conti- we're continuing to have because it's the ongoing threat even after 9/11 of course. Um, and so I that is when I decided to um, give myself another name before it was media psychiatrist, which still holds true. But um, I then started calling myself the terrorist therapist, and have written two books about terrorism, uh, coping with terrorism, dreams interrupted. And my latest one, um, which I really feel passionate about, is Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. So it's the, it's for children. It's for parents and teachers um, and for children. The picture book part of it is for children. And so I, I get really um, – <laughs> I, I get – Caught up in these passions. I mean, you know, 9/11, of course, has been uh, an ongoing passion now for what almost 20 years. And before that, one of my passions, and the reason why I moved to California, was after my residency at Bellevue, was um, to help the entertainment industry um, portray mental illness, portray um, not portray violence, not have gratuitous violence. Um, and I wanted to come here and explain to people, which has turned out to be a more difficult <laughs> challenge than I had envisioned, but mm-hmm. I have made inroads, um, explain to people the impact of gratuitous violence in television, um, movies, video games, to try to get people to realize how it is making the world, and in fact it has been, we see the proof now, uh, more mm-hmm. violent. Yeah. For our listeners who may not know what um, media psychiatry is, can you define that for us? Sure. Um, what it is is basically what I've been discussing, that 
um, using the media, using television and radio and uh, all media, print and internet, um, to convey ideas and insights about um, various issues that people are facing in their life and helping them with that. I, you bring this up. The, it sounds as though that you have a great deal of passion in reference to violence and terrorism and things of this nature, and that's certainly understandable, and I, I applaud your work for that. I'm curious, what is your take on the, per, the, the really the, the cause of all of the mass shootings? I mean, I, I'm interested in your opinion on that. As a media psychiatrist, as a psychiatrist, and, and given your, your body of work, is it is it mental health? Is it is it uh, the availability of guns? Is it is it something else? Well, mental health is definitely an underlying part of it. Now that you know get, has gotten to be um, sort of a, a controversial thing. Um, you know, <laughs> what's really been interesting and alarming at the same time is some things that we have taken for granted as psychiatrists. Um, our, you know, the whole world has sort of gone crazy in a sense in, um, in questioning certain, you know, questioning certain things that, um, that really psychiatry explains is a certain way and, um, people want to believe it's another way. But in any case, and, and so this is an example of it. Um, when apparently, I mean, I've been talking about in the media, talking about um, and in books and so on, talking about how um, mental, well, mental illness, psychological problems um, are related, to, are at the bottom, at this, at underpinnings of uh, mass shooters and and um, other kinds of problems. And nowadays, it, it is so, see, everybody is so ready to jump on everybody's uh, neck, back, something, whatever that expression is. Um, now, it's so um, politically incorrect, apparently, to say mental illness altogether. And the problem is, um, it's semantics. The problem is that when, when I say or, uh, that, that people who uh, perpetrate these mass shootings are mentally ill or have mental problems, um, you know, in various ways that, that same, that same statement, um, I don't mean necessarily that all of them are, which they weren't, not all of them are psychotic, not all of them are schizophrenic or manic depressive. Um, and yet, you know, there's this, this tendency to sort of jump on that and say, no, no, they're not mentally ill. Well, there's a lot of different ways of, of being mentally ill, and certainly all of them have had childhood problems. They have all had either um, they've been abused, they've been neglected, they've been um, the result of divorce that has left scars on them, they have, um, they have been bullied, um, various things in child traumas in childhood that then give them the time to uh, absorb themselves in video games and other violent media and um, have their anger, their rage stoked by that, given the direction by that until finally something tips it off and um, and they um, and they perpetrate a mass shooting, you know whether it's a girlfriend breaking up with them or some you know, current problem that then um, causes the volcano to erupt. It, it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible thing, and I, I, 
you know, based on what I understand, it, I certainly would concur with your assessment uh, underlying mental health issues through childhood and, and ongoing, but it is a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, I, I really want to know uh, what your take is on the current health care crisis beyond just that. There's a tremendous amount of depression. Uh, it seems as though addiction is so prevalent now. And uh, couple that with the shortage of health care providers, particularly in the area of mental health. Your thoughts? We are, we are really heading towards, a, a, we're on a downward spiral. Um, one of the biggest problems is not only that there's a shortage of psychiatrists, but actually this kind of goes together. Psychiatrists, when I, when I trained <laughs> to be a psychiatrist, you know, I'm talking primarily about my residency at Bellevue, which was the number one place in the world to be trained in psychiatry because you see everything. You know, the worst cases are sent to the emergency room at Bellevue. And then also, of course, there's NYU where you see the, the worried well. Um, but anyhow, um, when I was trained and also trained by um, the New York Psychoanalytic um, Institute supervisors from there, also I went to uh, London to train with Anna Freud, um, you know, psychiatrists did therapy. They weren't all psychoanalysts. I'm not saying that, but men, many of them, if not most, did um, psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy or at least had the knowledge um, of that, whatever kind of therapy they actually practiced. They they understood the workings of the mind. Mm -hmm. And um, nowadays, psychiatrists have been reduced to pill pushers. They see patients for um, med visits. And, um, you know, which are like usually between 15 and 20 minutes, sometimes uh, could be half an hour. And that's once a month or once every two or three months. Now, it's no wonder that someone doesn't get well, whatever their problem is. It's no wonder that they don't get well when all they're getting is med visits. Medicine, although it's very necessary in certain kinds of illnesses and problems and so on, it is not the cure. The only way mm -hmm. to cure, so to speak, or get to the bottom of or improve um, a person's mental health is through psychotherapy. It doesn't have to be psychoanalytic. I'm not saying everybody has to lay on a couch for five years. But, um, but certainly you need a psychiatrist who understands how the mind works in that way and who, and who sees the person for therapy, talks to them about their childhood, about the things that are going on currently, which, of course, have the problems have roots in their childhood. Um, and, and they're not getting that and all that's happening. Uh, and I know this particularly well because as a, in my capacity as a forensic psychiatrist, you know, where the, uh, there are lawsuits, like after someone commits suicide and, and, um, serves the doctor with malpractice or someone, um, shoots someone or, um, or other kinds of problems. So what happens is when the patient goes back to the psychiatrist, after a month or two months or three months and all they've had are med visits, um, the psychiatrist just piles on, oh, you're not feeling better? Okay, I'll mm -hmm. add this. And they wind up coming away, you know, with three and four and five different kinds of medications and not any better. Yeah. And so, um, so yes, society is getting more complicated. You know, terrorism is certainly part of it. Uh, you were saying about, um, you know, drug abuse and all that. A lot of these things have happened 
since 9-11. I have been tracking these things, and a lot of this self-harm, um, a lot of, you know, people, the obesity epidemic is like an easy way to see, and that's happened since uh, 9-11. People are trying to stuff themselves, to comfort themselves, and same thing with drugs and alcohol. And yet, at the same time, when they go to get treatment, what do they get? Uh, first, there's this lack of psychiatrists altogether, and then um, and then they don't get therapy. They get some prescription thrown at them. Yeah, just masking, masking their feelings. If you were in charge for a year, and it would take probably longer than that to resolve this issue, what what's the solution? Do you have? Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've certainly worked with a number of psychiatrists uh, in my capacity as a physician recruiter over the years, and psychopharmacology is, in fact, the, the norm, as I understand it, uh, the pill pushers. And what's the solution here? Insurance companies paying differently, reimbursing differently? That's it. I mean, that's what started this all. You know, most people did not go to medical school and psychiatry residency to be pill pushers. Some people mm -hmm. did, like in my uh, graduating class, you know, um, for, from psych residency. Um, yes, there were some people who were interested in psychopharmacology all along, and that's what they did. But most psychiatrists didn't want to do that. They wanted to talk to patients. And um, the solution, and it all came apart when insurance companies woke up one day and said to themselves, huh, you know, it would be a lot cheaper if we paid a social worker or a psychologist or a marriage and family therapist, all of which have much um, less training than psychiatrists and, and who therefore charge less, it, we would save a lot of money if we only paid those people to do therapy and we just paid psychiatrists to give prescriptions. And that's what changed everything. And that was, um, so yes, you know, one thing that could be better would be for a psychiatrist to, uh, for insurance companies to pay psychiatrists enough to be able to do therapy. But at this point, it has to start back in the residency programs because there has to be more training again in doing therapy. Um, and, and also, even before that, it needs to, um, there needs to be a way of letting people know, you know, sort of a public information campaign, letting people know if they're thinking of going into medicine that you can actually spend time talking to patients as a psychiatrist. Even regular doctors, you know, family doctors don't get to talk to patients much these days either. It's, it's all, it is, it does come down to money and insurance and all of that. The other thing that I would do if I were um, in charge of, you know, um, yeah. If I was had a job as America's psychiatrist, as I like to call myself, um, is to reopen the state mental hospitals um, because it is since they closed and the county hospitals and the you know mainly state mental hospitals, large mental hospitals, um, reopen them and um, not so that they could be like cuckoo's nest. Um, but so that they can help people, and I think nowadays we would be able to help them a lot more than back in the cuckoo's, <laughs> cuckoo's nest day. Um, and that would take um, a, a large percentage of the homeless off the street and get them help. It does seem that since that era, I, it may have been under the Reagan administration, that the pendulum has swung a little too far in one direction, where it becomes very difficult to to get a wellness check on somebody who's in crisis, uh, it's it, I, I know this from personal experience 
loved ones that it can be very difficult to intervene. And we, we lost the ability to bring people into the system for care. I, I guess because we were worried about violating their, their personal rights. Yes, you know, when I moved from New York to California, um, and, you know, I was working, um, I was admitting patients, my private um, patients, some of them had to be admitted to a hospital, so I was admitting them and I got on I'm the um, the um, role of the uh, faculty at Cedars, and I was also on the faculty at UCLA. And um, when people came to the emergency room and they wanted to, and they needed to be admitted, um, all, it was so much harder to find another psychiatrist. I mean, there used to be this, um, there's a, there's a, presumably there still is, it's just that it's not, many psychiatrists uh, I found when I got here were afraid to put their name down on a two PC, two physician certificate. They didn't want to be the one or the one of two to um, commit a person because they were afraid that the person would then sue them later on for if they didn't want to be in the hospital, you know, if you were hospitalizing them against their will. Um, psychiatrists all of a sudden were very squeamish about that. Where I came from, at Bellevue, you know, there used to be a saying, I mean, we would admit them one, two, three. We weren't afraid to do the right thing. And um, there was a saying that if, uh, uh, amongst residents, um, that if you were crazy enough, you know, to want to, well, this is people who wanted to get into Bellevue. Sometimes there were people who were homeless or who, you know, had various problems, and they came to the emergency room and they wanted to get in. And so we used to say, you know, if you're crazy enough, and I'm being, you know, facetious and using the word crazy, I don't want to offend anybody. Um, but that if you're crazy enough to come to the Bellevue ER and want to get in, then you do need to be hospitalized and helped. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I, I'm sitting here uh, just uh, excited to ask you about one of your more interesting, fascinating uh, experiences in your uh, expert witness testimony or some of the, the more celebrated cases that you've been involved in. Is there something that you can share with us? Sure. Um, well, I've been involved in a lot of different uh, high-profile cases. Um, I like that because there's not only the challenge of, uh, of winning the case, but um, of, you know, being questioned about it in the media and not, not saying too much and, you know, finding the proper line and so on. Um, I think one of the still, even though I've been involved in a lot of high-profile cases, still the most, the one that's most dear to my heart was one of the early ones that I did. I was just starting as an expert witness, and um, I, ha I became the defense psychiatrist for Jonathan Schmidt, who was um, the man, it, it, we called it, it, it was the Jenny Jones murder trial. And this was a case where Jenny Jones, for those people who don't remember Jenny Jones, she was a, um, a talk show host. And I had been on her show a number of times. Um, but, you know, talk show hosts and now, or talk shows and now reality shows do kind of uh, fly fast and loose. And um, she had this show uh, called, which she told guests, people who she wanted to be, have on as guests. 
She told them it was called a secret crush show. Uh, but it was really, uh, it was really planned to be same sex secret crush. So of course, you know, it was to embarrass people who would be, um, who would be surprised, ambushed on the show by someone um, who had a same-sex secret crush on them, and for those people who you know didn't want, didn't want um, the implication that they were um, gay, um, that would be very devastating. So they contacted Jonathan Schmidt. They told him that somebody had a, a secret crush on him. He thought it was his uh, fiance who had broken up with him. He was hoping it was she. Uh, or he thought it might be these other girls at work and so on. So he, he never even heard of Jenny Jones. So um, so he came on the show, and sure enough, uh, there was this guy who he had met through this woman who was his friend. Um, and, uh, oh, it's a whole long story. I'm trying to – I'll shorten it. Um, so he was he was very shocked when he came on. It, it turned out – that, you know, of course, they don't ask these kinds of questions. Well, since this happened, it did make a change in some um, talk shows and reality shows where they're a little more careful, a little more careful in screening. They at least make you sign something that you can't sue them. But anyway, so he um, he came on. He was shocked to see uh, the guy and the girlfriend. And um, they didn't ask him before having him on whether he had any mental health problems. And it turns out, that um, he was bipolar and he had made several suicide attempts before, which of course would have been or should have been a no-no to have yeah. him on a show like this to uh, to ambush him. And um, so they there he was. He was on, and after the show, um, after the three days after the show, he went. To, Scott uh, Amador was the uh, the person who had the same sex secret question. Three days after the show. John went to Scott's house um, and tried to get him to stop following him, to stop pursuing him. And Scott just smirked at him. And um, John took had brought a gun with him because he, he and his uh, father and so on used to hunt, and he brought a gun with him. And it was gun, he bought the gun originally to kill himself because he was and, – and the media put it out as he was uh, homophobic. And this was a gay hate crime. It was nothing of the kind. John wasn't homophobic. He worked with um, a, he worked as a waiter, and uh, a lot of the in high end places, and a lot of the other waiters were gay. He didn't have a problem with that. In fact, he had told this guy he didn't have a. He said, "I'll be your friend." This was before being on the show. "I'll be your friend," but I'm not into this. But he knew John knew that his father and his his family were very homophobic. And he was afraid that if his family saw him on this show, because they already, you know, saw that he wasn't, uh, he didn't want to go into the military and he didn't really want to, he only hunted because that was the time he could be with his father without being abused. Um, and so he knew that his family would assume that he must be gay. They had had questions about it before because he wasn't, you know, big Michigan um, hunting military men. And this would seal it. They would think that um, he was gay, and if he if they thought he was gay, they would have ostracized him. So that was what it was about, and he was just trying. And it's a whole other, you know, it's a whole. I mean, I was on the stand for a day, and 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 Court TV was um, taping this, you know, it was, it was live actually on Court TV, 
um, gavel to gavel. And this is, as I said, one of my first trials, certainly my first big, you know, high-profile trial. So um, there's a lot of pressure. But so the morning was spent with the prosecutor trying to get me disqualified, which didn't happen. Um, I was qualified. And then the afternoon, the whole afternoon was explaining John's psychodynamics. In other words, um, it had to do with his, basically it had to do with, whole story, I'll, I'll shorten it. It had to do with his father who had been abusive. His father was a Vietnam vet and, um, and some incidents happened. And it turned out that when he, when John shot Scott, um, what in his mind, which by that point was totally resolving, um, he thought he was shooting his father. So the jury got it. I mean, you know, talk about psychoanalytic. When I do my expert witness work, I do explain things to juries in a very, um, you know, it's childhood on kind of thing, um, explaining why people do what they did, not just because they walked into a grocery store and they shot up the grocery store because they were hungry or something. You know, you have to get to the to the bottom of these things. And if you explain it to a jury in, you know, a, a chronological kind of way, they get it. Mm-hmm. What a strange show theme. Um Wow. And, and, and another thing I'm thinking of as you're talking to me, a lot of these cases seem pretty, you know, intense and definitely something that you probably bring home. Um, so for our listeners that are thinking about going in to psychiatry and, you know, may not understand just the intense stuff that you could bring home, how do you deal with it? Um, yes. You know, you... I mean, you can't shut yourself off from it altogether or you won't have enough compassion for the people. But um, you do have to try to learn. I mean, the best way is if you feel that you have done the best that you can, like whether it's a patient that you're treating in your office or whether it's a case, if you feel at peace with yourself knowing that you have done everything, you know, which sometimes means um, quite a lot, sometimes means going over and above, um, and then, you know, then, then you can feel at ease with it. Like, yes, you can feel sad that someone is in a particular predicament, whether it's in their home life or in a case, you know. Um, oh, and let me, t- let me tell you the I didn't tell you the end to the, <laughs> to the Jenny Jones case. Um, the end of it was, that um, John was accused of first-degree murder, um, and everybody thought it was a slam dunk. And because of my testimony, I got him second-degree murder, and he just got out on parole fairly recently. So it's those kinds of wins um, that, you know, that kind of keep you going. And, yes, I, I in fact, I've started a book. Um, I almost finished a book about this case. Wow. Um, because it it has lots of um, ins and outs and interesting st- things that go on behind the scenes, not only in the show, but um, in the court. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you just have to you just have to be able to face yourself in the mirror and know that you have done everything, and that you know you're. You, you, there are some things um, you can only do. I mean, I, I don't want to say you can only do so much because I don't really, I don't really work that way. <laughs> I mean, I, I, um, I mean, it's true, but I like to, I like to think that, that you can keep trying harder and trying harder. Yeah. 
Yes, uh, that's wonderful advice. As long as your intentions are pure and you give it your best, then you, you have uh, the ability to look yourself in the mirror. Well, we're already almost out of time. But for our listeners who may want to look up any of your books, uh, where can um, they see more? Well, um, if people are interested in my tourism, terrorist therapist work, um, that would be uh, on the website terroristtherapist.com. Um, and my um, my other books are on um, well, also my other my basic website is drcarol.com, D-R-C-A-R-O-L-E.com. Um, then, of course, I have my expert witness. I'm actually in the process of combining these things. <laughs> Too many websites. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my expert witness is expertwitnessforensicspsychiatrist.com. Gotcha. Can you get them any of them on Amazon or no? Yes. Yes? Okay. So that could be a good spot. And I'll, I'll put all the links um, in this episode description to make it really easy for everyone. But I just want to say thank you so much for your time today and being willing to talk to us. We, we really enjoyed learning more about what you do. This has been fascinating, Dr. Lieberman, listening to you. And, and uh, I hope to have the opportunity to, to get you back on at a future podcast. Uh, we want to wish you season's greetings and happy holidays as well. Thank you very much to the both of you as well. No problem. What, what does the rest of your day look like? Um, well, um, <laughs> I am going to be, of course, doing, you know, I, I can do a lot. Of, one of the nice things is that some of this expert witness work, um, a lot of it you can do at home reading records and so on. So I have some of that to do. Um, also, the one thing that I do, the one, my forbidden pleasure um, that I that I recommend. This is oh, I guess in a way this answers you know your other question, what to do when you're taking too much home. Um, I have a forbidden pleasure of riding horses. I have a horse and I compete on the horse, and I'm going to have a lesson today. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Happy holidays to you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.